page. God's working, the Holy Spirit's moving in our church, but, but it's really important that as, as a church, we understand the direction God's leading us. And so we're going to do a two-week series, Pastor John and I, on the marks of a disciple. And John's going to explain uh, and set, kind of set the framework for that. But I, I just want to, uh, if you're new to us, my name's Tom Allen. I'm teaching pastor here, and I am also a professor at Cairn University. But we have a number of pastors. Pastor Bob, uh, Bob Travis is our lead pastor, so he's the boss man. If things go well, um, sh- we share the credit. If they go bad, we're like, well, that's what Bob told us to do. So um, we really love him and appreciate him and his family. Uh, we also have Pastor Jonathan Master, our pastor of uh, ministry, or not ministry, of um, care and leadership development. I want to put out a plug for that. Jonathan's the, the dean of the School of Divinity at Cairn University. He's a very gifted teacher, and he just started a new Sunday school class this week that is um, going to be giving an overview of the Old Testament, so it's going to go through December. But those of you who really are wanting to grow, it's already pretty full, but we'll figure out a way to, to make room for you. And then we also have uh, pastor Jeremy, our youth pastor, and we also have our outreach director, Austin, and then we have a, a whole lot of other people that are involved here. But I say that simply to say that I want you to um, understand why Pastor John's going to lead this, because his, his title is Pastor of Discipleship, Pastor of Adult Ministries, and John is a very gifted um, young man. The Spirit of God is upon him. He's a thinker, a reader a theologian, and God's really working in his life, and watching him grow has been a great blessing, but he's really the one that has been spearheading the way to put together and frame our understanding of how we're going to live out, and we're going to work on our mission, and John's going to tell us about that, so we're going to do a two-week series. I'm going to do the first part today after John sort of gives you the overview, and then John's going to do the second part next week, so let's welcome John as he shares with us. So I'm going to start with a story. I'll have the ushers distribute the Bibles now. I'm not going to be taking you into into Scripture uh, per se. Tom is going to do more of that. I will share some Scripture with you, but it'll be on the on the screen here. But as the ushers come forward to distribute the Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, this is yours to keep. It's our gift to you. We would love for you to take that and read God's Word. So I want to I want to start with a story. Uh, my wife was in the first service, and I think she's downstairs now. So if you see her, she can verify. One, that this story is true, and two, that I have her permission to share it. Um, when, when we were first married, I was a full-time student. My wife was working full-time, and uh, so I did most of the grocery shopping. And that's not normally a good thing because I'll come back with all sorts of stuff I shouldn't come back with. And so I told her, you need to give me a list of exactly what you want. I mean, exactly what you want, and I'll come, I'll come back with it. So, and, I, and I think I did pretty well. But there was one time she asked for Cool Whip. Cool Whip was on the list. She was making a dessert, so I had to go get Cool Whip. Well, I went to the store and bought what I thought was Cool Whip and came back home, and then my wife very gently and lovingly and compassionately told me that that was not Cool Whip, that I had bought a a can, a squirt can of whipped cream instead. Apparently, they're they're not the same thing. I didn't know that. Uh, Whipped cream, Cool Whip, it's all the same thing, right? No, apparently not. So I said, okay, now I got to file that one away. So whipped cream and Cool Whip, not the same thing. So then she let me go shopping again, not too long later, and said this time she, she uh, it was very clear, she didn't want Cool Whip. 
I said, okay, I know, I know what I'm not going to be getting. I'm not getting Cool Whip. So I bought something else, and I came home, and I, and I think I, I came home with, with a tub of whipped topping, right? Didn't say Cool Whip. I didn't get Cool Whip. I got whipped topping. And she very gently and compassionately and graciously said, no, that's still not what I need. I needed whipping cream, which apparently is different from whipped topping, which is different from Cool Whip, which is different from whipped cream. <laughs> I no longer do the grocery shopping. Amen. <laughs> now, the reason I tell you that story is because I learned through that experience something important. Definitions matter. The way we define things, the way we talk about things and understand things is very important. And so, as a church, our mission statement, as many of you know, oh, i got to turn this on, is advancing the gospel by making disciples who make disciples. And I love how all of our ministries have come around this. This is our mission. We want to advance the gospel and we want to make disciples who make disciples. But one of the problems is when we use a word like disciple, we could have all sorts of different ideas of what that means. Because the word disciple is not a real common one in our vocabulary. And so we fill it with all sorts of different meanings. And, and, and what ends up happening is we become like a bunch of people who are trying to build a house we all have the same goal. We have, this is the goal, advancing the gospel by making disciples who make disciples, but we're all working off of different blueprints. That house is not going to be real sturdy. And so part of what this series is about is to give us the same blueprint to work off of. When we talk about what a disciple is and what it means to make disciples, we all want to be thinking about the same thing. And so I want to offer first a, a brief definition of what we mean when we say the word disciple. And then I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the, the, the series that we're just launching into and, and what the marks of a disciple are. So first, in Luke 6.40, Jesus says, A disciple is not greater than his teacher, but everyone, when fully trained, will be like his teacher. And so we use that as kind of a base text, and, and, and we've drawn in other scriptures uh, as well to define it. But the bottom line is this. A disciple is a forgiven follower of Jesus who is growing to become like him. Now, the first picture that might enter your head when you think of disciple is a guy in a robe and sandals walking around in the desert. That's not what we mean. A disciple is a forgiven follower of Jesus who's growing to become like him. Say it with me. A disciple is a forgiven follower of Jesus who is growing to become like him. So that's what we mean when we say disciple. We say we want to make disciples, we want to make people who are forgiven followers of Jesus and are growing to become like Him. Now, Jesus said that a tree would be known by its fruit. And He said in John 15, 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So there is, there is fruit in our lives, there is something that comes out of our lives that demonstrates that we are Christ's disciples, that we are his forgiven followers. And so part of what we want to do in the next two weeks is expose you to these, these three big ideas when we, when we talk about the marks of a disciple, the fruit of a disciple's life. What are those things that should be marking your life as a follower of Jesus Christ? 
And that's where this, this image comes in and, uh, and the whole idea of the series comes in. We believe that a disciple will be marked by a lifestyle and, and will be learning to love God and love others and live for Christ. Those are the three big ideas. Love God, love others, and live for Christ. So this week, Pastor Tom is going to take us through those first two. I gave him a really, uh, really hard task to, uh, to cover that in about 20 minutes, 25 minutes or so. Um, so I didn't take that one on purpose because I didn't want to do that. Uh, so Pastor Tom's going to cover that, and then next week I will be back up and we will talk about what it means to live for Christ. Amen. Thanks, John. So obviously, to think this way, what does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love others? is a lifelong quest, but we'll talk about this a lot. And we really want anybody who's a part of this church body to understand, this is the mission. This is what God's calling me to do, to become a forgiven follower who is a disciple, who's making disciples. Now, with that in mind, I want to just, before we talk about how to love God and, and what does it mean to love others, I want to remind you that the starting point is, this is so important, a forgiven follower, okay? None of this is going to make sense to you until you reach that point where you understand that you are forgiven. And, and that's not automatic. Jesus doesn't say, hey, the whole world's forgiven. We're forgiven as we come to understand the gospel message that Christ died for our sins. And as we have our eyes open, we repent and we believe in him. If you're not sure whether you're forgiven, you might even be trying to be a follower, but if you're not a born-again Christian, if you have not been forgiven by God's grace, that's what we want to talk about. And I want to invite you, if, if you're not sure, just feel free to write your, your phone number down or your email, slip it to me on the way out, ask someone that you're coming with. We have so many people that are new to our church, just starting to read the Bible. People will tell you, you can't know. There's no way to know. The Bible says these things have been written so that you can know that you have eternal life. And the gospel message is a message of hope and absolute assurance that you're forgiven of your sins if you respond to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, with that in mind, when you do that, you become a follower. And a follower is going to practice these three things, loving God, loving others, and living for Christ. So let's start with this first one. And I encourage you to take some notes here because we're not going to look at a whole bunch of verses jumping around. There's a couple passages. But I want to start with this question. This is the most important commandment in the Bible. Jesus said that. This is the most important commandment. Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Every Sabbath... Jewish people gather in their synagogues and they recite Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Now, if any of you think you're doing that well, then probably you really need to read the Bible more. Because the reality is, that's impossible. So I want to start by asking the question, what is going to enable me, a sinner, to love God? Before I talk about what does the Bible teach about how to do that, what's going to enable me to do that? Well, number one, we need to come to recognize that we cannot love God even though he commands it, okay? We can't love him. He demands and commands it, but we can't. Number two, we can't love God even though he deserves it. In fact, the Bible describes the heart and mindset of anyone who's not born again in the following way. And you might jot this down. Romans 
8, verses 7 to 8. doesn't matter if a person's religious or a nice person. It says this. The mindset on the flesh, which would be a way of describing an unbeliever, is hostile toward God. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. So then, those who are in the flesh, those who aren't Christians, cannot please God. So we're sort of in this dilemma. God goes, I want you to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we come to realize, I can't. So let's pray, and then we're going to talk about how to do that then. Lord Jesus, may the Holy Spirit take your word and enable us to understand just exactly how you work in our lives so that something happens deeply within us that changes us and enables us to love God. So again, we cannot love God until God does something in our lives. So what's going to enable me? The first thing is to recognize this. The only way we're going to love God is if he initiates it. And it's really important. That might seem like a, a minor point, but it's very significant. I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 4. While you're turning there, let me remind you, there are a number of verses in the Bible about loving God. For example, remember that famous verse in 1 Corinthians 2? It says, eye has not seen nor ear heard the things that God has prepared for those who love him. You're like, oh, I want to be one of them. The book of James, James says, blessed are those who persevere under trial. If, if you hang in there under your trials, once you're approved, God will give you a crown of life. He gives a crown of life to all those who love him. And I go, but, but how do I love him? Well, I have to understand that he initiates it. And he initiates it in two ways. Look with me in verse 7 of 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So John, John brings something out here. He goes, if you're going to learn how to love others and to love God, you have to understand, everyone who does that, it's because they've been born from God. God has done something in their hearts. So here's what I mean by God initiates it. Number one, he initiates it with his electing calling, his electing calling. In other words, we would not love God on our own unless he first set his love on us and drew us to himself. For example, we, we quote a famous verse, but we often don't make the connection. Hey, brother, I know you're going through a hard time, but all things work together for good. Don't forget that all things work together for good. But then remember the rest of the verse. He says, all things work together for good to those who love God. But sometimes we, we stop there, and that's not even a good place to stop. Because then it says this, those who are called according to his purpose. So what the Bible actually teaches is that if, if, if I'm ever going to learn to love God, it's because by his grace, he called me to himself. He knew me first, and he worked in my heart in such a way that, that I became a believer he, he, he made me alive, and now I have the capacity to love God. It's interesting. Paul, Paul will slip this in sometimes in, in places in the Bible where if you're not paying attention, you'll miss it. Paul was, was teaching the Corinthians that knowledge isn't as important in, as love. So he says in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, knowledge puffs people up, but love builds people up. If any man thinks he knows anything, he doesn't know anything as he ought to know. But then he says this, 
If any man loves God, he has been known by him. Right? Now think about what he means by that. If anyone loves God, he is known by him. That doesn't mean that one day you and I just decided, I'm going to look up to heaven and start loving God. And he goes, hey, thanks. It means he knew you in an electing way to draw you to himself. He was the one that brought you to that place where he made you alive and, and turned you to himself. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul described it this way. He goes, look, if you're not a believer, he says, before we were believers, we were dead in our sins, disconnected from God. He said, we walked according to the course of this world. We, we indulged the desires of our flesh. If we wanted to do it, we did it. Indulged the desires of our mind. He says, in fact, by nature, we deserve God's wrath. But then he said this. Even when we were dead, because of the great love that God had for us, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So the starting point is to understand that if I'm going to learn how to love God, it's because he loved me first. He chose me. He elected me. He brought me to himself. But then secondly, the other really strong point is, is to recognize that then, as I learn about Calvary, that becomes my impetus to love God. And this is what I mean by he initiates it. As John goes on in 1 John to, to talk about God's love, he says in verse 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Notice, we didn't love him. He loved us. He sent Jesus to die for us. So notice, he'll say twice in this passage then, what he says in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Does that make sense? So you go, I want to follow Jesus. Well, it's a response. He first loved me. He died for me. Okay, since he died for me, now I'm going to learn how to love him. Well, what's that going to look like? How can I learn how to love God? Well, as you can see, it starts with divine enablement. So let me suggest three very practical ways that you and I, the rest of our lives as Christians, are going to grow in our love for God. Understanding that he initiated it, there's three things we can do. Number one, as a Christian, to love God means to seek to find your delight in God. In other words, it means that God becomes my chief pleasure. He becomes the, the, the thing in my life that's most important. Now, that's, this is not an easy thing. Our minds and our hearts are very deceitful. So the Bible says, watch over your heart with all diligence. So, so we're going to have an ongoing battle for our affections. There are going to be many things in our lives that the Bible calls idols. In fact, the last verse of 1 John, he says, little children, guard yourself from idols. And I don't think he meant their statues. I, meant, I think he meant those things that compete for our affections that become more important than God. It can be your boyfriend, it could be your girlfriend, it could be your spouse, it could be your job, it could be your success, it could be your money, it could be anything. It's always drawing our affection to a horizontal level when God says, no, I want you to love me with your heart. So how do I learn how to delight in God? Well, let me mention a couple things. One, we have to consciously cultivate a relationship with him. God wants to reveal himself to you in such a way that like the pearl of great price, for joy of finding God and finding Jesus, that that just naturally becomes the thing that you look forward to. That becomes the thing that you find the most pleasure in. 
And the only way I'm going to do that is if I cultivate my relationship with him. Instead of looking at it like this, you better have your devotions, right? That's not the perspective. God wants us to be in his word because this is how he speaks to us and this is how we respond to him. He reveals himself and then I respond as I cultivate my relationship so that I'm learning like Abraham. I want to become a friend of God. Like David, I want to be a man or woman after God's own heart. Like the psalmist, my soul follows hard after God. So it's so, so, so as I'm cultivating that relationship, music matters. I can listen to music. I can, I can sing to him. I worship him. Relationships matter. When, when, you, when you hang around other people who love God, they inspire you. They challenge you. They help you to cultivate that relationship with God. And you do that ruthless inventory that says, what am I really living for? Is it for me? Is it for, for my next thrill? Or is it because of God? So, so this is a conscious practice that you and I have to train ourselves. It's not going to come naturally. The Bible says discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Here, here's an example. Listen to these, these verses. They're very challenging. This is what the psalmist said. Write this verse down. Psalm 73, 25. As he thought about how dumb he was, Asaph's like, I can't believe what a beast I was before you, God. But nevertheless, you were right there with me. Then he came to this point where he said, God, who do I have in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. And I read that verse and I want to crawl in a hole. I feel like a spiritual pygmy. Beside you, God, I desire nothing on earth. Right? So, so delighting in God is learning that he's the only thing I really need. The Bible says, let your life be free from coveting and longing for other stuff because Jesus said he'll never leave you nor forsake you. It's this understanding that Jesus is really all I have that I can be sure of and he's really all I need. And so I cultivate that. I pray about that. David, as he got to know God better, he said, oh God, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. The Lord is my portion. You know, when you're laying in bed at night, do you think about the sporting event, or do you think about the Lord? The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he reminded us as Christians, he said, listen, Colossians 3.1, since you and I have died and been raised with Christ, set your affection on things above where Christ is. But that's not easy, is it? I mean, I find my heart going, how did I get over here? I'm all excited about this. And so it's a journey. John Piper's really mastered probably one of the best contemporary writers on this subject of delighting in God. And a couple quotes that some of you are familiar with, but I'd encourage you, if you haven't read of any, any of Piper's material on this, Piper says this, and we know we're supposed to glorify God. He says, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. So, so that when we can genuinely sing, I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than wealth and land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands and to be the king of a vast domain, but be held in sin's dread sway. Piper said something else that was significant. He took the Westminster Confession. Many of you remember that, that famous phrase, the chief end of man in the catechism is to glorify God, right, and enjoy him forever. But Piper says, no. The chief end of man is to glorify God 
by enjoying him forever. So if I'm going to learn to love God, I want to learn to pray and seek to delight myself in him. But secondly, I learn to love God as I learn to depend on him. God wants me to depend on him. And he'll often pull the rug out from under us on purpose. He'll often position things in our lives that are painful. And immediately we go, God, this hurts. Stop it. Take it away. The apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He said, Lord, would you remove it? And the Lord says, no, no, no. He says, in fact, what I'm going to do instead, Paul, is he said, I'm going to teach you that my power is perfected in your weakness and that my grace is sufficient for you, so you're going to learn to depend more on me. That's how we love God. We love God as we learn to depend on him. Instead of trying to be self-sufficient, we realize that he, he created us to need him. He wants us to recognize that, even in our prayers. He's very offended when we don't feel a need for him. The church at Laodicea said, oh, we need nothing. And he says, no, then you're miserable. You're wretched. And so I seek to depend on him. So I delight in him. I'm learning to depend on him and trust him. And then third, I love God when I seek to do the things he commands me. Do things. You're like, well, what kind of things? Well, look in in chapter five here of 1 John. John says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. And by this we know we love the children of God. Now, here it is. When we love God, and literally it reads, and do his commandments. Okay? That's a really practical way to think about, well, how can I love God? Delight in him, depend on him. Do what he commands. Is there something in there that's not clear? Do what he commands. Now, that's a journey because much of the Christian experience is is a subjective sense of being led and making good decisions. But there are clear commands in the New Testament. The law of Christ, the love of Christ. And if, and if we look at obedience to God as something that's really hard, like, man, being a Christian, man, I used to have so much fun when I wasn't a Christian. Now I've got all these rules, right? Look at 1 John 5, verse 3. John says, for this is the love of God. In other words, this is how we love God, that we keep his commandments. And notice, his commandments are not burdensome. Does that make sense? The Christian experience shouldn't be this like, oh man, being a Christian is like miserable. God puts a new heart in us. He gives us the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, come to me if you're tired and heavy laden and I'll give you rest for your soul. Take my yoke upon you, which means start being willing to walk with me and do what I say. And he says, and you're gonna find rest for your soul. Now this is a great challenge. Because there are so many people in America who call themselves Christians and obedience isn't even on their screensaver. They, they, what are you talking about obedience? What's that have to do with being a Christian? First John chapter two says, if you say you've come to know him and you won't do what he says, then you're a liar. So raising our hand is not what it means to be a Christian. Responding to his grace and being born again changes my heart, and then I say, Lord, I want to learn to do what you say. And for some of you, you're here today, and you know what he's telling you to do, and you've been saying no, or you know what he's telling you not to do, 
and you've been saying no. And this morning, the Holy Spirit's saying, listen, God loves you. Jesus died for you. You're his. He'll fix his love on you forever. He doesn't love you any less, but he wants you to start doing what he says because you love him. And again, that comes from the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus will never ask you to do something he won't enable you to do. The Bible says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He never intended that to be put on the boxer's arm to go, I can knock this guy out because Christ strengthens me. I can do all things that he commands me to do because he's going to strengthen me and enable me to do them. So, that's pretty practical. I want to learn to love God because he initiates it. I want to learn to delight in him. I want to learn to depend on him. And I want to learn to do what he says. But that's the vertical piece. Then the Lord says this. And I also want you to love your neighbor. And so we want to ask, ask, ask the second question. All right, how am I going to do that? The second, second commandment. Well, let me ask the same question that I asked about loving God. What's going to enable me to learn how to love people? It's certainly not a seminar. It's certainly not a guilt trip. It's certainly like, you can do it. Just like I can't love God even though he demands it, I can't love people even though God demands it. And we surely don't love people because they deserve it because they've all disappointed us in one way or another. So in the same way that I learned to love God because he initiates it, I learned how to love others. Same way. Because God initiates it. Look back at 1 John 4 again. Don't miss this. You're like, okay, I want to be a disciple. And God says, great. Then I want you to love, love one another. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. It's not from you or me. Love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who doesn't love doesn't know God. For God is love. So you're like, God, you're telling me to love these people? I can't do that. And he goes, I know you can't. But here's how you can. If you're born again, you now have a new capacity to love others. I've taken away your heart of stone. I've given you a new heart. In fact, Paul assumed this. He wrote to the Thessalonians. He goes, he goes I'm going to tell you about loving one another. He says, but really, I don't need to do that because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. You remember how you used to beat up your brother when you were younger? But man, if anybody else messed with your brother, you're like, that's my brother. You're like, where did that come from? Normal people, and again, that word normal is rather broad. Normal people have a filial instinct to love their siblings, even though it's very weird. And some of you are still beating up your brother, and that's a problem, okay? So, but just as there's this filial natural love, born-again people have been enabled by God to love others. And it's the same reason that we love him, because he initiated it. He gave me a new birth. And so, therefore, my love for others is also a response. In fact, it's really interesting because all of this, loving God, loving others, living for Christ, is a response. And so, yours and mine ongoing love for others is going to be rooted in the gospel, a rehearsal of the fact that he loves me. And because he loves me, I can love others. So let me give you three ways that I think the Bible really focuses on how to love others. Number one, the way that you and I learn to love others, and remember, I'm not a graduate of loving God, loving others. I'm a fellow student. But here's three things that God's teaching me about loving others. Number one, pattern your love after Jesus. 
Pattern your love after Jesus. Write this down, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Paul said, therefore, learn how to imitate God because you're his beloved children and walk in love just like Christ did, right? So Jesus becomes our model, our example, a forgiven follower who's becoming like his master, right? We're becoming like Jesus. Well, Paul says, love after the pattern of Jesus. Well, what was the pattern of Jesus? This is what the verse says. Walk in love as Christ did, who gave himself. So, so I have to, have to say, all right, Christ gave himself for others. I want to learn how to do that. And there's a second pattern you can follow. It's not near as good as Jesus, but there's someone you know really well that, that, that you've learned how to love pretty well. It's you. You're like, what? Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And some of you are going, well, that's not a good idea, man. I hate myself. I'm stupid and ugly. I hate myself. I want to propose that even people who think they hate themselves and even maybe want to kill themselves, and, and maybe if you're struggling with that, you're not alone. There's help for that. We want to help you. Let's talk about it. But even the desire to kill yourself is in a twisted way a form of self-love because you're saying they're my happiness, my pleasure, my relief is most important. And so in a certain way, we all do a pretty good job of loving ourselves. We can arrange things so that we benefit in the end, okay? It's nothing like the pattern of Jesus, but it is a pattern that he used. Do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. So, number one, I want to I practice patterning my love after Jesus, and that's, that's going to take a lifetime, but it's not going to happen by accident. Number two, and this one's really important, practice love even if you aren't feeling it, okay? People think it's hypocritical to practice love if they're like, well, I, I don't feel like loving them. There's nothing in the Bible that says you have to feel it, okay? One of our brothers was sharing with me yesterday something he read recently. Love does. I like that. Love does. So what would that look like? Well, let, let me challenge you to consider that here's a very practical way how you can learn to practice love. Take 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, and write them down on a card or on a three-by-five. Put them somewhere where you'll, where you'll be reminded, okay? And then start doing them. So Paul says, if you have all the gifts, you have all knowledge, you don't have love, you have nothing. Love is patient, okay? So if you want to learn how to love others, practice being patient with people. It's not going to come naturally. It's not going to come easily. You're going to work on it. It's not going to happen automatically. Love is kind, Okay? You're like, yeah, but you don't understand. I'm not like that. That's the whole point. None of us are like that. We're born again so that we become like that, the fruit of the Spirit. One of the fruits of the Spirit is kindness. So are you being kind? Love doesn't seek its own. So I have to remind myself, Lord Jesus, I want to practice being unselfish. That's not what I want to do today, but that's what they want to do today. So let me be unselfish. It doesn't always have to be my way. Lord, help me to become more like you and not always have to have it my way. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Yeah, well, what about what you did? And you're like, honey, that was 19 years ago. Yeah, but you still did it, right? Loving people is not being a great, perfect person. It's being a good, quick forgiver and a person who says, this is hard, but I'm going to keep praying and learning how to practice love. 
Paul says love doesn't brag. Love doesn't act unbecomingly. And then he says three things really cool about love. He says love endures all things. He's like, you don't understand. If you, knew, if you know what my kids were like. Now, he didn't say love endures some things. It endures all things. Love believes all things. It doesn't give up on people and say, this person is just an incorrigible creature that I'll never love. Love endures all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. It continues to believe that this person can change. So that's something you and I can work on doing, Lord. You know, if you're thinking about elbowing your spouse right now, you're like, you you are sick, right? Because you're missing the whole point. God's not saying, go home and teach other people how to love. He's saying, do this, and I'll enable you to do it. So pattern your love after Jesus. Practice love even when you don't feel like it. Third, prioritize the people God's especially calling you to love. Prioritize the people God's especially calling you to love. I mean, you're like, seven billion people in the world. How am I going to love them all? Well, there seems to me to be some pattern in Scripture that says there's certain people particularly that God wants you to love. Your family. Okay? The Bible says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So, so if you're married, okay, God, I know God really wants me to prioritize loving my spouse. That, even those of you who are so faithful here in the church, some of you love the church, you love the Lord, and you're so active here, but if you don't love your spouse, Jesus didn't ask you to do that. He didn't say, listen, go out there and lay down your life for my church. He says, I already did that. He says, I want you to lay down your life for your spouse. So, your parents, you have a particular calling by God, if your parents are still living, to love your parents, to practice love toward them. Your children, if you have children, you have a particular calling from God to love your children. But you especially have a particular calling from God to love our fellow Christians. This is so important. This is, the New Testament screams with this idea that God wants us to cultivate and fervently develop our love for other Christians. Peter said it this way, keep fervent in your love for one another. Paul says, above all things, put on love. He says, the goal of our instruction is love. Paul says, Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another. So I want you to think about, okay, what am I doing to love my fellow Christians? Paul said it this way, while you have the opportunity, Galatians 6.10, Show love to all men. Do good to everybody, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. So this is why we really are encouraging you to get into a small group. Because it's in that small group that then you can begin to give tangible expressions of love. John said it this way in 1 John. Beloved, let us love in word, not just in, or excuse me, indeed, not just in word. It's easy to say, oh, I love you. I I love you so much. Do it. Remember the guy used to tell his wife, honey, you know I love you so much. I'd die for you in an instant. And she says, you always say that, but you never do it. (laughs) God's not asking you to to kill yourself for your spouse, but but he's asking you to, to, to think, okay, am I patient? Am I committed? Am I engaged with other Christians? Oh, I don't have time to get with people. We're too busy No, that's not biblical Christianity. It's a commitment to say, I want to get engaged with some other people who love the Lord and I want to pour into them and I want to show love to them. 
I want to be paid. I want to give to them. I want to receive from them. I want to be in a relationship with them. And then finally, perhaps the most important, and I'll close with this. I want to pattern my love after Christ. And yeah, certainly it's going to take practice. And there is a priority to who I'm going to love. But at the end of the day, it's really important to pray regularly, very specifically, to learn how to love people. Because we've been saying this. It's got to come from God. So, so, so I'm not going to, at the end here, go, okay, everybody put your hand in. On three. Let's go love. Three. Because it's not going to happen. It's going to happen as the Spirit of God works in our heart and answer to prayer. And I want to share two scriptures. Paul said this, and you can jot these down. And one of them, I want you to make it your prayer. I pray this a lot. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, Paul says, As far as loving your brothers goes, I don't need to tell you this because you're taught by God to love one another. And he says, you are practicing it. You already heard Tom's sermon on that. You are practicing it. But then he says this, but I urge you to excel still more. That's what's so cool about learning how to love others is that there's an unlimited capacity to love more. And that's not intended to make you feel guilty. It's actually intended to say, wow, I have the capacity to even excel more in love. And it will be a joy to abound in love for others. So knowing that, instead of being so excited about upgrading your phone, like, oh, I can't wait to get the next upgrade. Upgrade my love, oh God. I want to excel in my practical, tangible patterning and practice of love. But here's the verse that I find very helpful to pray. And you might want to jot this down and and memorize it. That word have I hid in my heart. 1 Thessalonians 3, this is what Paul said to the Thessalonians. May God himself direct us to you. And then he says this in verse 12. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people. What a great verse. May the Lord, this morning when I get up, today I want to ask you to cause me to abound and increase in love for all people. People like my family, but even people I don't like. Lost people, red and yellow, black and white. Lord, cause me to increase in my love for my fellow Christians. And as you pray that in faith, God promises to answer our prayers. And so next week, Pastor John's going to teach us a little bit more about what it means to live for Christ. But certainly, we've got some work to do. By the grace of God, let's ask the Lord, help me to be a disciple who loves you and loves others. Father, thank you for your word. It's alive and powerful, and maybe some of you, as you're thinking about it, you're like, no wonder I can't love God or others, because I'm not born again. And this morning, you want to change. You want God to change your heart. You feel that work of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you believe that that something has to change. Ask God this morning to forgive you of all your sins, not because you deserve it, but because Christ died for you. Commit yourself to becoming a follower. Ask him from this day forth to cause you to become a disciple. Not a spectator, but a follower. And if you want to talk about that, just jot down your phone number and slip it to me on the way out the door. Give it to Pastor Bob. Give your phone number to somebody here, maybe someone who brought you. We'd love to help you to to know for sure. But I'll be the first one to line up for confessional. Father, as a church, we want to repent for the fact that we have not loved you 
near like we should. In American Christianity, we've often lost our affection and our passion for you. But we can't change our own hearts. We can only mourn our sin and repent and ask that you will remove the idols from our lives and clear our way to a vibrant, passionate relationship with Jesus. Father, help us to love you. Help us to delight in you. Help us to follow hard after you and seek you. Father, help us to depend on you and do what you say. And then, Lord, as we look around at our family, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to pattern our love after Jesus, to be more like him. Do what you say in terms of practicing love. We can all do a better job. And, Father, I pray that the Spirit will will inspire within us a passion to pray for this abounding love so that as this church continues to make disciples, may we see you continue to make disciples who make disciples. We give you all the glory. We're excited about the work of the gospel in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Be praying for Pastor John as he shares with us next week on living for Christ.